For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. How are you this week? Are you enjoying the new series? Actually, I'd love to get your help with spreading the word. As you know, I'm an independent creator, so word of mouth is so valuable to me. I appreciate it so much. And I had this idea that I was going to ask you, what if could each of you share one of these episodes, pick your favourite, with two friends? That would be so amazing, right? You really would help me reach new people who might enjoy what we do here. And, you know, it wouldn't take long, would it? You could just email them and say, check this out, or you could send them, I don't know, DM them. Let me know if you're up for this. I'd be so happy to hear from you. As you know, you can always find me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. And also, if you leave me a five-star review in Apple and share it with me on social media, I will give you a shout out on the show. Anyway, just an idea. I'd love you to help me. Okay, this week, how much do you know about Danish fashion? It tends to be very cool, but it's also often progressive on sustainability. Now, you may recall our interview with Ghani's founders, Nikolai and Ditta Refstrup. Go back and check it out if you like. It's episode 119. I love it. You know, you can find all the past shows on our website, by the way. It's uh, thewardrobecrisis.com. Some of the Danish designers that I like include Cecilia Barnson. Do you know that one? Oh, beautiful, like sort of very puffy, naive dresses. Gorgeous. So nice. And what else? Baum und Fergarten. Actually beautiful. Very cool. My mum used to sell that shot, that label in her store like 20 years ago, but it has evolved into a very sustainably minded label as well. Another one, Steen Goya. So good. That was one of my favourite shows from Copenhagen Fashion Week a while ago. It was a dance performance. I need to dig it out and share it with you. So good. There's a new one as well, an emerging one that I rate. It's called Nikolai Storm. And he actually won the Zalando Sustainability Award last year. But today, I'm not interviewing a designer. Rather, my inspiring Danish fashion friend, Cecilia Torsmark, who is a pioneer when it comes to making fashion weeks and shows more sustainable. And I don't just mean by outlawing plastic water bottles and throwaway sets. We're going to talk about that. Cecilia is the CEO of Copenhagen Fashion Week, and her work has really paved the way for bigger, more established events to take her cue. In 2019, Cecilia set up a sustainability advisory board for the Fashion Week, and she asked me to join it along with some of the people I most admire working in this space, including Ghani's Nikolai Refstrup, but also another one who's been on the show, Amy Powney. She's the designer behind the British label Mother of Pearl. She's in episode 71, by the way. I wrote all these down because you want to go back. Okay, this episode goes live just as the latest edition of Copenhagen Fashion Week is happening for the Autumn Winter 22 collections. And they're going to be actual shows. And so we ask, is everything going back to normal, in inverted commas now, or to the way it used to be pre-pandemic? Why shouldn't it? And what's the alternative? Why do we need fashion weeks at all? Can we reinvent them? And what role could they play in a more sustainable future? Okay, let's get into it. Please say your surname for me, Thorsmark. You're beautiful, yeah. Was it? In, in English, I say Thorsmark, yeah. Pronounced in Danish, it's Cecilia Thorsmark. So you don't do the because it's just the T. Um, but my name in English would be Cecilia Thorsmark. I really love the Danish pronunciation and want to get good at it. That's why I asked you. <laughs> anyway, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome yeah. you to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Claire, for having me. It's a very busy time for you, so we're lucky. What's going on with you? It is a very busy time. It's um, We have a week and a half to go until uh, until Copenhagen Fashion Week kicks off in um, in a slight, you know, Another pandemic um, edition, but it's actually going to turn out better than what we could have feared uh, a month ago. Um, So Mm. looking forward. I kept thinking, Cecilia, that we would get to do this in person. 
we're friends. We've worked together a bit. We know each other. I was always thinking, well, I'll come back to Denmark and we'll sit down and we'll do this podcast. And yet here we are. It was January 2020 last time I was with you in Denmark. And two years later, there's still all this disruption, right? So I'm glad we get to do it digitally, but it has just been such a long time, hasn't it, of dealing with this difficulty planning. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, some procedures have been made easier. I mean, I'm delighted that I, that it actually is possible to speak with you today. But I also remember the times where you were walking around doing your podcasts in person with people um, because I was I was there. I met you um, and I would have loved to, you know, sit with you right now. But but this is also this is better than nothing. I should just say, especially to listeners who've been with us from early on in the show, that Cecilia was instrumental in me beginning this because, and we'll get onto that, but when I first went to Copenhagen Fashion Summit, you helped me. And in fact, one of my favourite episodes, which is with Ellen MacArthur, and it's number 57, if you want to come back and listen to it, was because you helped me do those interviews in, in at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. So thank you. Well, you're welcome, Claire. And actually, I also want to just add that, you know, I've been, I think, looking so much forward to today's session. And I've also been a little bit nervous about it because you were one of the first podcasts that I really, like, really dug into and listened to. And I've, you know, I remember the, I don't know which episode it was, but, you know, listening to the Best Year Collective podcast, which is ages, years ago. And yeah, yeah, and, and helping you out, as you said, at Copenhagen Fashion Summit back in, what, 16? 17? 17? Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Now, I need to begin with a very important question. Firstly, are you wearing some Danish clothes? <laughs> um, in in fact, I am. Um, you know, right now, I'm actually, I'm sitting, we, we built a, uh, a garden office um, just in the beginning of the pandemic. I think, you know, after a few months seeing that we would be working from home a lot, we built um, this, you know, wooden... It is insulated, but it is. So my point is, I'm sitting down here, and it is a little bit chilly. So I think right now I might look like I'm going hiking. Maybe I'm wearing a padded vest, and I'm wearing knit knitwear, and I'm wearing a turtleneck, and um, I'm very comfortable. And yes, it is actually all Danish fashion. My boyfriend, full disclaimer, has a Danish um, fashion label. So I am uh, I'm the happy receiver of a lot of a lot of his clothes. And what's so- it called? It's called Soulland. Yeah. And so basically your office is like a fancy garden shed that you had built so that you could make sure you could work from home. I love it. <laughs> it serves multiple purposes, but but this one is actually um, by far like my favorite moment. Um, you know, when I work from home and I can actually go down into our garden and sit here and, um, you know, still enjoy the daylight outside. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite nice. See a cat passing by some, you know, random, uh, random, you know, city cat. But also get some distance because we've all got to adapt, haven't we? I mean, I, I always joke that I called this podcast wardrobe crisis, but I never meant to be in the wardrobe making it. And yet I am because my office is my wardrobe. Yeah. It's a room. It's a little room that has my wardrobe in it. But it's funny, We, you just have to find new ways to make things work. And we're going to talk about how you did that on a grand scale with Copenhagen Fashion Week. But I think people relate to just having to improvise a bit. Yeah. And you know, you're lucky if you've got space at home, but lots of people have to work in, I don't know, a corner of the kitchen or whatever it is and just try and figure out a strategy, right? Because we've been thrown into so much disarray. Exactly. And I think, you know, we have, we have two kids. So when, when we're all at home, whether in isolation or for whatever reason, there isn't really room um, to work or at least not to Mm. work in a, in a quiet space. All right. I want to talk about what's coming up. So last week when this comes out, which is actually on January 24th, we're recording a few days before, you published your latest annual sustainability report. And the introduction looks at the pandemic and how last season Copenhagen Fashion Week was able to return in a hybrid form and experience, at least in part, and I'm going to quote, a return to the tactile experience of fashion. You talk about the liveliness and the buzz around the city and human connections, which we miss, right? But you also mm. note, while we appreciate this sense of normality, we don't want to forget what the pandemic taught us, in fact, is still teaching us. We've experienced a rise in voices advocating for responsible business practices and a more mindful way of living, 
in Western societies. Nevertheless, and this is all from the report, we'll share a link. Nevertheless, we have also observed whole industries falling back into old patterns of fast cycles and consumption. Mm-hmm. You like that. <laughs> I think what really has has impacted me and struck me the most is how prior to the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about the need for systemic change, for example. Systemic change was really, you know, one of one of those topics that were like at the forefront of the industry agenda. And in the first few months of the pandemic, there were actually some efforts to to accelerate, you know, systemic change, like the the business of fashion rewiring, uh, rewiring fashion. Um, And I believe, you know, thousands of signatories and supporters signed up to this and really supported it. And and there was Mm. this optimism in the beginning of the pandemic, in spite of, you know, the health crisis that was happening, but on an industry level, there wasn't, there was an optimism somehow that, okay, this could actually be the, like, the the driving force for change in the industry at last mm. and um yeah now two years after it seems that you know systemic change is something that mm, it's definitely not primary any longer it seems secondary again um and it seems it's something that we're just again talking about and not really seeking out the the opportunities or no one is maybe really taking the lead or people are maybe just confused because so so many things have also happened mm. uh, during the pandemic. We've had, you know, loads of, of challenges for businesses struggling to survive and struggling to, you know, get their um, supplies and just in general, you know, global economies really being impacted by the pandemic. So companies have also had a reason to focus on their own businesses. And I fully respect that. And I'm not saying mm. that that was a wrong move, but we are living in a, in a capitalist uh, world and, and the fashion industry is, uh, is in, you know, mm. uh, one of the very uh, capitalist and very not regulated uh, industries as well. So things have maybe gone a little bit out of hand again. I think that's at least mm. what I'm observing and <laughs> definitely not the only one. I agree. I think it's like this rush to try to get back what we had before. And I get it. And so we talked before about that quote saying about the human connection of shows or even just meetings. We miss it. We want it back. And yet the job is actually to try and find some sort of balance between not simply hurtling back and missing this window of opportunity to redesign the system, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's where we're at. And that's also why I think, you know, that we continue doing what, what we really believe in. And, and I mean, and I know that, you know, luckily so many other organizations and players and companies are doing the same. And they're kind of, you know, revitalizing their sustainability efforts and um, the latest news um, around the the New York uh, Fashion Act is also another good sign that, you know, things are still happening. And also, hopefully, um, from a, you know, political level, there's a tension to, you know, we must, we must, Mm. you know, take better care of the people and the planet working in this industry. And, you know, and if, if they can actually, you know, pass a bill in the state of New York and regulate a very, not regulated uh, industry, um, that would be, you know, a major leap forward. I think it's super ambitious. What do you think about it, Claire? I love that you mentioned it because we didn't talk about this before, did we? But of course you're watching the news. I'm actually going to interview Maxine Beda, who is the founder of the New Standard Institute about this two episodes after this one. So yeah, I think it's been very, very interesting to see that happen there because there hasn't been, to my mind anyway, as much momentum in New York around sustainability from the big brands. We haven't seen that. So to me, that was very interesting and kind of cool, right? Because it's quite far reaching what they're trying to propose. Yeah, yeah. Let me take you back before we get into the sustainability action Mm -hmm. plan that I just mentioned. 
because I'm interested to know if you had a plan. Like we started talking about when we first met because you used to work at Global Fashion Agenda, which puts on the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, which if people are in, into sustainability, they will have heard of. But in 2018, you became, was it 2018? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in 2018, you became the CEO of Copenhagen yeah. Fashion Week. I want to know, first, how did you get the job? But mostly, did you start out with this big idea of almost kind of putting a stake in the ground going, right, so we're going to set a benchmark for sustainability and be really full on and bold with this? Um, I think you're completely spot on in, in asking that question because the only reason why I applied was because I saw the potential to, you know, rethink uh, Copenhagen Fashion Week and and kind of reinvent the role of a fashion week in general. Um, so just to yeah take you back on that journey, the position as CEO became available in the summer of 2018. And at that point, I'd been working for the Global Fashion Agenda for yeah almost eight, nine years. And I uh, was super happy in my job and super happy, you know, by... Eva Cruz's side, um, the, the former CEO of Global Fashion Agenda. For me, I think purpose and feeling good about going to work um, is the most important for me. And of course, yeah, feeling that what I do has a purpose. Um, but I did start considering then if if this job would um, would suit me. And um, at that time, I, also having worked at the Global Fashion Agenda for so many years and having, you know, been, you know, promoting sustainability in the fashion industry, the first thing that that struck me was, you know, if I go into Co into Copenhagen Fashion Week instead, that would be like contradictory to everything. Oh, right, because it's all commercial. <laughs> to everything that I've been, you know, working with and dedicating my, you know, professional career to. You know, a fashion week, isn't that just, you know, this glamorous event where we, you know, celebrate fashion and all of this, you know, stereotypical images that you get, um, you know, when you think about a fashion week, people that are sipping champagne, cheek kissing or whatever. Um, and really not a... But, yeah, yeah, but also selling clothes. I mean, and that's what I think when I think fashion yeah. week's commercial, you know, at its core, fashion week is about presenting new collections and helping yeah. brands to sell them. Yeah sell more and um and stimulate um a demand in consumers that you know we could argue how much more clothes we need and mm. of course i'm i mean i love fashion i think like you do yourself as well i love the creativity i love the creative you know persons working in our industry i admire um you know people working along the entire that like supply chain of the industry i think there's um there's so much so many human touch points that you know if you come to actually appreciate you know that entire process then you cannot but really cherish your clothes but um and i love the i think i already mentioned the creativity and the handcraft and the creative thinking and the creative expression and all of that i love the creative industries in general um, but what I found was, um, yeah, just a need to really revamp and, uh, reset, um, fashion week. So that was the reason why I applied because I thought there was potential to turn things around a little bit and, um, and do it differently. What did they say or what sorts of reactions did you have when you presented your ideas I've actually been very overwhelmed by the support. And I think it's it's a very clear signal that that the industry has, you know, has really lacked uh, a direction or has lacked some some requirements. Um and of course it's it's bold because and I think we will go back into exactly what we're doing, but we are requiring um some very high standards from brands that will participate at Fashion Week going forward. And that comes with a risk, of course. It comes with a risk of losing uh, some brands that might be, you know, aesthetically fantastic, beautiful, super creative and everything. But if they're not, and, and, and that is my conviction, and if they're not willing or able to live up to sustainability criteria as well, then 
there's no future for them at Copenhagen Fashion Week. And I'm also sorry to say, but I also don't think that there's a future in general for them. I think the the consumer is uh, thankfully uh, getting, you know, more and more conscious yeah. with time. And of course, the fashionability of a brand will always um, remain a super important criteria, you know, in, in a purchasing de- decision. But many brands, you know, or a sustainability criteria will also be factored in um, and is already being factored in by by many consumers. So I th- I think this is also, you know, you can look at this in several ways. You can you can say, okay, it's Copenhagen Fashion Week. Are they making it more difficult for brands or are we maybe hopefully assisting brands, guiding brands in making better decisions that will also help future-proof their businesses. And it is that latter um, part that I'm so focused on because I believe it's it's going to be needed in the future um, for any brand. So even mm. though it sounds harsh that I say that there's no future for them at <laughs> Fashion Week. And of course, I mean, if they don't live up to the criteria, it's not like they're excluded forever. They get a chance to apply again. Um, but But hopefully this is a way that that sparks, you know, motivation, but also this, as I mentioned, this like common direction for the industry that they know, you know, this is, this is what we should pursue. And, um, and it's, it's a set of very, yeah, hands-on criteria. So what did you set out to do with that first sustainability action plan? I knew that I wanted to do something quite radical and requiring, um, sustainability if you can say that from brands was um was what i thought could actually move the needle and have an have an impact in the industry so through a long process of roughly a year starting with um us together with uh, a consultancy company called infoturum um our advisory board our sustainability advisory board and a panel of experts consisting of you know many different researchers from different um, yeah countries. So it wasn't just a Danish uh, Danish group of uh, of uh, industry experts, but uh, an international group of industry experts. A long process of roughly a year of people you know reviewing, giving feedback, and chipping in and giving input like yourself. Um, so we came up with. Uh, the sustainability requirements, which are requirements that relate to the entire value chain of a fashion brand. Not just the show, which would have been the easy way to do it for a fashion week that we just require, I don't know, a responsibly produced show, but it's requirements that relate to the entire value chain. So from strategy to uh, material choices to uh, working conditions, uh, consumer engagement, uh, the design phase, and so so forth. And of course, also the show. Having this very holistic approach is very essential for us because if we want to actually drive change in the industry, it starts with how the things are produced or how, how the fashion is produced. Um, also, how consumers are being informed about uh, these, these decisions. And um, yeah, so on a concrete note, we have 18 minimum standards. Um, they have to comply with these 18 minimum standards in 2023 in order to be a part of Fashion Week going forward. And they're things like? They're things like um, committing to not destroy unsold clothes, Having at least fifty percent of uh, of the collections being um, sustainable in some way, meaning either uh, organic, um, certified, upcycled, or recycled, it is um, of course complying with uh, you know human rights and OECD standards. It's um, yeah, it's uh, it's many different things. It is also um, producing only zero waste fashion shows yeah but you can see the long list um, of the 18 minimum standards either on our website or in the report 
You also did a pilot to try to figure out how brands would grapple with these sustainability standards. Tell us about that. So essentially, I'm so happy we did a pilot. First of all, because uh, you need to you know you need to test out a system before you 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 implement it, of course. But also because the pilot allowed us to gain insights into how the industry was doing. So we did it a year ago. So in the beginning of 2021, which is, you know, two years before everything goes into effect. And one of the things that we learned from the pilot was that no brand was able to meet the 18 minimum standards. Oh, wow. And you were with like Ghani. I mean, there are 12 of them in the pilot, right? Who were they? Ghani, give some other examples. Um, Ghani, uh, Rhodopia, Marimeco, um, uh, Rotate, Saks Putz, Baumund Fertgarten, Stine Goya, a lot of, a lot of brands. And I'm not saying that, you know, some of these brands were, you know, lagging far behind, but it was interesting to see that no brand complied with the, all of the 18 minimum standards, which I think is exciting because all of mm-hmm. these brands are super crucial to the success of Copenhagen Fashion Week, also in a year from now, in 2023, which means that I hope that we have already then, by doing that pilot, um, served as an eye-opener or inspired them to accelerate further in order to meet these 18 minimum standards. And I have some indications now because we've actually run a second pilot test in the fall featuring uh, 50 companies. Uh, it was a government-funded uh, project and so happy they, um, they they wanted to to test out the system because it allowed us to get a lot more brands on board, also brands that are not a part of Fashion Week. But we can see that there has been made a lot of progress since just a year ago. So I'm quite, quite comforted. Just if anyone's wondering, the process itself, it's self-reported. Do they do it online? Is that how it works? Yes. I'm looking forward to other Fashion Weeks doing this. But in the past, we couldn't have fathomed this. It was are you popular enough, cool enough? Have you got enough money to show in the fanciest venue? Are you going to pull the crowds? Do we need you on the schedule? No, no. And I just also wanted to to add that besides these 18 minimum standards is an additional uh, 68 questions that is, um, they're not all mandatory um, to uh, live up to, but they give points. So ultimately, when you answer these additional 68 questions, an automated uh, point score is generated. That point score, and I know it sounds maybe a little bit boring, especially since we're talking fashion week and now I'm talking about some survey and you can earn a point score and everything. But that point score is like a sustainability score, basically, which allows you, as as a brand, you really gain insights into how you are. I shouldn't use the word performing, but how you are placed as a brand. But it also serves again as a like a motivational factor in, you know, you really want to improve that score next season mm-hmm. for next season and the season after and the season after that. So in that way, it becomes sort of like a good guide, like an A to Z, Z guide on, you know, how to work more sustainably. Because if you score 40 points the first season, I think, again, human nature would, you know, would make you want to score more than 40 points at least for the next season. So you'll find other other areas to work with. Cecilia, were you a competitive child? Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Do I sound like it? <laughs> I just wondered. I was going to ask you about your childhood later. I'm oh, asking you now. Did you win at um, sports all the time? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was a competitive child, um, maybe maybe from nature. And it definitely didn't help that I, at one point in my life, I lived uh, four years in Egypt and I attended an American school, which was all about sports. And it was fantastic. And um, But I think... Maybe more than competitive, I think I, I was a very strong-willed uh, child. I know from, you know, still, you know, I have a super close relationship with my parents and I talk to my mother on a daily basis. And it's something that we, you know, sometimes just laugh about, that I am strong-willed and I am stubborn and I'm lucky to have a have a boyfriend who uh, 
<laughs> who accepts that? And um, and funnily enough, we also have well, we have two kids. One of them is also quite stubborn and strong-willed. So, yeah. <laughs> what what did your parents do? My mother was a teacher uh, in elementary school for yeah all of her life, and um, I think having a mother who's a teacher means having a mother who um, has the same schedule as yourself. So super fortunate, you know, we're going to school together and coming home at the same time, you know, she was home early in the afternoon, um, just like, you know, my brother and I were as kids. So my mother was always there during our childhood. And I don't know how it is in Australia, but I guess, yeah, you also have probably a super long summer vacation. And so do teachers in general, because schools are closed. And mm, so you get fun. Yeah. The same cycle. And um, so she was there really all of the time during our childhood, just giving us, you know, loads of love and support and a very um, warm mother. And my father was, um, he was working almost his entire career in the Danish environmental ministry. Um, Also super, super loving as well. Um, But yeah. So that was he posted then in Egypt? Exactly. Yes. Did he instill environmental values into you? Do you remember that as a kid? No. Or was it more separate? I clearly remember it. Um, I clearly remember that it's, I think, I think any child is interested in, you know, what does mom and dad do? Um, And obviously it was quite, it was very evident to me and my brother, what my mom did as a teacher, you know, everyone knows a teacher and it was a little bit more um, to young kids, like mysterious. What is this thing about environment and what is environment actually? So I remember having had, you know, many chats and discussions around um around the environment both you know sitting at the dinner table in general trying to grasp some you know um like ozone layer what is that and why does it matter that we pick up our litter on you know from the street or that we don't throw litter on the street and um yeah so it was it was definitely i think it was something that very early on shaped my um appreciation um for a clean uh environment and and a clean planet but also made me conscious i was going to ask you actually i mean you've got two beautiful kids i know roberta is 10 how old is the little one she's five five does being a parent affect your view on sustainability or your feeling of responsibility towards trying to make a difference yeah i mean i think the climate crisis puts parenthood so much into perspective. It gives a new perspective on on families and having kids. And there are people who factor in climate change in their decision on whether to have kids or not. Uh, yeah. And I can actually understand why some people fear having kids. I never feared having kids because I wanted to have kids. But I can really become like very um, saddened about mm. the future um, that they will be, <laughs> yeah, the future that they'll be growing up in. But also, so, you know, best case scenario, it won't affect my kids too much. But the day they have kids, and I really hope that my kids will have kids if they want to have kids, that is. But what about their kids? And, mm. you know, will will my kids um, grow up to be, you know, miserable, um, demotivated mm. adults? Because I'm scared. I mean, yeah, I also think you, you worry about them worrying. And yeah. I mean, there's so much in this, but I was thinking... I just always worry about little hearts being broken. And of course, they are the next generation of sort of yeah. Greta's age kids. They already know. So it's not like we can protect their little hearts. I don't know. I panic yeah, about it actually. And I haven't so, even got kids. <laughs> no, but it's, and it's, and it's so spot on the way that you phrase it. I was also thinking about the other day or over Christmas, I saw a post that Arizona Muse had done where she was talking about the privilege that comes with living in places like we live. Mm-hmm. with relatively speaking heaps of money if you look around the world at inequality in yeah. cities in 
northern Europe or, you know, we've had a lot of fires in Australia, but even so, like living in basically rich countries where you have an urban existence, you're inured from the worst of this, but climate change is already here. And of course, it's affecting the most marginalised in the worst of ways already. But I think that also really, um, it comes with a responsibility um, to, to, you know, go into parenting and it gives you a responsibility and an obligation to involve your kids in this discussion early on um, and um, teach them about why we are experiencing climate change and teach them about what they can do and um, bring them to, you know, a demonstration. We went to see, uh, we we're fortunate to, to that Greta Thunberg was here uh, in Denmark, in Copenhagen, speaking to a big crowd. It must have been obviously prior to the pandemic. So in, in maybe 19, I guess, it could have also been 18. And, um, and we took them um, to see her and it was a big experience for our oldest child. Our youngest was too, was too young um, to, to understand what was going on. But it's, I think it's important for, for kids to aspire to some of these, you know, agenda-setting voices um, that don't accept, you know, um, and that won't accept a status quo in our society, but that will only accept progress and action and mm. change. We could have a whole podcast about, in fact, we've already got one. So I will suggest that listeners go back to, I've forgotten the number of the episode, but we'll share a link, a very nice podcast that I did with a climate activist here called Anna Rose. It's about courage in the face of climate grief, but it's actually an incredibly hopeful, even joyful episode. And it looks back at her very long history because she started being an activist at 14, which is crackers, but how she fosters hope through action and actually... I got so much from listening to her. If you're listening to this, dear listeners, and thinking, bloody hell, that's gloomy. What am I supposed to do about it? I worry about it too. I don't know what to do. I really believe that the antidote is action and that everyone can find a different route to action. But let's talk mm. about yours, Cecilia, about mm. what you're doing, because through your policies, you can say, all right, in my world, in my it's not the whole world, but in my lane, what I do, I can actually try and change policy and I can get people to really address their carbon footprint. All right, let's just explain or unpack how you do the work of addressing the carbon footprint of Fashion Week. At the August 2019 edition of Copenhagen Fashion Week, you measured your baseline of 45 tonnes of CO2 emissions. Before we go any further, for listeners who are like, what are we talking about? Could you just in lay terms, summarize how an organization or a brand, or in this case, your case, an event, goes about measuring that. What do we mean? What is baseline? So by baseline, we we simply mean that the first time we measured our carbon emissions um, was in 2019. So that number will be used as, you know, the reference point in the future. So in 2019, we measured our um, carbon impact in collaboration with our climate partner called uh, Climator, who we're still partnering with. And Climator is a gold standard and verified carbon standard uh, company that um, through data that we give them, they're able to calculate our impacts. So to give an example, the carbon emissions from the food served at Copenhagen Fashion Week. Our partner then asks for, you know, what food did you serve? Um, for how many guests? How many days? Um, what exactly was it? Was it meat? Was it vegan? We provide them with all that data and they then calculate it and they come out with how much um, the carbon emissions was from just, you know, serving food at Copenhagen Fashion Week. Everything from food, beverages, um, it could be car services, bus services, merchandise, travels, flights, hotels, and so forth. I do think this is very interesting because often when we talk about greening events, it's about like, just make sure there's no single-use plastic. We'll do mm -hmm. that. And then let's look at maybe 
not putting up really extravagant sets that we've made to use once and chucking them in a skip. But actually, this is really detailed data around all of the different elements that involved are involved in getting a bunch of people to watch a show and getting them there and back, right? Yeah. The, um, and the difficult part and the dilemma with flights is, is something that actually, um, um, and I think it's also super important for me to be very transparent about, you know, also the fact that we are not perfect because we actually set a target to reduce our carbon emissions. And um, we have not reached that target. We have not reduced our carbon emissions on an overall so it was 35%, right, that you wanted to bring it down? Yeah, by this year and 50% next year. And it's not going to happen, unfortunately. And, of course, it's not something that we find satisfactory in any way. But, and this is just to also maybe give the listener an idea of how heavy uh, impact of the flight industry is. Because we've actually managed to reduce our carbon emissions significantly. Like, we've by half in many uh, categories, even 100% by just not doing something uh, any longer. We had merchandise before. We don't have merchandise now. Um, So we have managed to reduce all categories of our carbon emissions. Except. Which is great, (laughs) except flights. And actually, from also evolving as a fashion week that gains international uh, relevance more and more season after season, we've actually been in a position where we have uh, deliberately chosen to increase our number of international guests at Copenhagen Fashion Week because we want people to, you know, come here and see our Fashion Week. Of course, see what Danish fashion is all about and, Scan- and Scandinavian fashion is all about, but also to talk or involve them, engage them in our sustainability discussions. So we have increased our our hospitality guests. And that means we have on an overall level because I think flights is around 90% of our carbon emissions. That means that on an overall level, we have actually increased our carbon emissions. Not good enough. Not (laughs) good enough. No, for sure not good enough. But but, So, okay, what do you do? What to do? Of course, um, we are looking at, for example, Guests coming from neighboring countries can travel by train instead of flight. That that's an easy that's an easy uh, solution. That said, we have also um, decided to not reduce our hospitality guests. So we are also hoping for a miracle. I mean, we are hoping for the flight industry to be disrupted and um and it's actually i mean i remember clearly when i sat with this sustainability action plan back in yeah it was in 2019 where we developed it and i said together with our collaborators um we set these targets for 2020 2021 2022 2023 i was probably too optimistic in thinking that we would also be seeing a development in, for example, the flights industry. That development didn't happen. Hopefully it will in not too many years. How about this fee for brands then, this carbon offsetting fee? Yeah. So as of this season, um, all brands must uh, carbon offset their show. And uh, just like we at Fashion Week, oh, I didn't mention this, but the, the 45 uh, tons of CO2 that we emitted uh, at the first Fashion Week, and of course the numbers vary a little bit season after season, but we of course also um, compensate for that. And uh, I'm fully aware that offsetting is uh, not the answer to uh, to carbon emissions, but it is the least you can do. I would say like a hygiene factor. It's a it's a tricky one um, because a fashion week in its nature is um, is one that attracts guests from afar, and um, especially I mean if you're an international destination, there are of course some local fashion weeks also that might not have that bigger carbon footprint that we do as an international destination, and it is such a dilemma. Because on one hand, 
So we basically, we have two options. We can either <laughs> choose to not be an international destination. We could choose to not invite people to Copenhagen Fashion Week. Or we can we could also, on the contrary, or quite opposite, choose to grow the international relevance of our fashion week and grow the international attention in order to get our messages out. Hmm. And I'm not saying that one is more right than the other. I just know that with all the work that we have put into place with our sustainability requirements that have the potential to be implemented by other fashion weeks, other fashion organizations, even, I mean, in, in basically any part of the fashion ecosystem, magazines could implement, you know, sustainability requirements. Influencers could implement Can you imagine? or could work with sustainability requirements. Yeah. I actually, well, I mean, it's, it's maybe a little difficult to imagine, but it's actually. They should. Option. Yeah, mm -hmm. they should. Uh, we see a lot of retailers now also implementing uh, sustainability standards. That's true. So, yeah. So my point is that since we have the potential to inspire other industry players, mm. it kind of lies on our shoulders to grow the our international community. Yeah, uh, you could just stop me coming because obviously flying from Sydney yeah. is not going to do yeah. much for your car yeah. footprint. Yeah. I would just like to say that in previous seasons when I have gone to Copenhagen, I haven't flown from Sydney to Copenhagen and back. I've come from London because I'm working yeah. there for a, a longer period of time. But even yeah. so. Some people might say, why not just go digital? Now, there's quite a lot of data around the cut through of digital presentations. There was a particular Business of Fashion article, which I linked to it, basically saying digital shows don't garner anywhere near as much attention from media. Mm. But but why not just turn everything online? We've got the metaverse, have we not, coming up, Cecilia? <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it's it's not the answer to to our challenge. I think a lot of change and a lot of um action derives from from you know these human um connections and the conversations that you have and how you can be inspired by you know seeing what others are doing and it it just to me it it doesn't seem like that the like the digital space offers that same um inspiration or that same level of of course the digital space offers you know the exchange of knowledge, for example, to a very large degree. But I, I'm getting the sense that the digital fashion weeks and the digital shows, well, let me put it in this way, because they're, of course, I mean, of course, a digital show can be beautiful, but it requires a lot of investment. And I think um, both investment in the production of it but also investment in, you know, how to disseminate it afterwards and make sure that you, um, mm. you know, reap the benefits of, you know, getting a reach and people to actually see it. The problem is, in theory, it's really lovely. And I've seen some really beautiful collections digitally. However, as someone who has attended Fashion Weeks through a website for the last two years, the problem is the appointments, you don't keep them. So you say to yourself, oh, uh, well, there's a show at 3 p.m., so I'm really interested in that, so I shall make sure I watch it. But, of course, you don't because you're working and you're not yeah. there, and then you forget to watch it, and then you watch it back later, and then it's just a video, really. So yeah. you do research, and you are able to find out about brands and to get a glimpse of their vision for a season, but it's not the same thing. Maybe a giant brand like Gucci or Chanel can deliver an experience through loads of different channels all around the world in some mega buck <laughs> extravaganza. Mm -hmm. But for me, what I like about Fashion Weeks and what I've always gone there for is to talk to small designers and to yeah. go and meet them. And so the runway is one way into that, but it's also the part afterwards where you go to the atelier or you go and see the students and you talk to them about what they're doing. And that is actually gold. What? Let's yeah. finish on that. What do but, you and, think? And, and sorry, and if I can just also comment on it, I think any major movement like environmental movement or climate movement 
starts with, you know, community. And I'm not saying that community cannot be generated online. There are loads of, you know, big and important communities online. But I think in this world of fashion, our community um, thrives much better physically in person. And that's really where that's really where discussions and um yeah and, and just community is uh is you know being fostered mm. it's about balance isn't it we have to find a balance we can't keep growing exponentially in a crazy way and we can't as an industry keep making excuses for that yes it is about for sure it's about striking a fine balance but um one of the things that the pandemic has has taught us and and going back to your remarks in the beginning about our introductory words in our new uh annual sustainability report there is a sense you know going back to more you know physical installments and showcases and events and celebrating the tactile experience of fashion again and the human connection re-seeing each other in real life again and all of that there is this renewed relevance to a fashion week. Not to say, you know, the old way we did fashion week where it just happened, you know, it was just all about, you know, producing more clothes and showcasing more clothes and more, 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 new, new, new. But, um, you know, a fashion week actually being a super important epicenter for the entire industry. Fashion week generates media coverage and captures you know, the attention of consumers. So there's a huge potential to not only showcase the creative universes of the brands, but there's also huge potential to utilize that role and that moral obligation that comes with it to promote sustainability. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you.